Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Sandy, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and I'm joined by a few of my colleagues, of course, my two co-hosts, uh, Chris Dorides and Marissa Di Natale. Good to see you guys. Mark, Happy to be here. You look a little look a little tired. I guess it's very early there in California. It is, yeah. Yeah. It's uh, just after 6 a.m. Oh, that is. And I got early. up at 4 30 for a meeting we had before this. So Okay, so you've con- you've Not gonna lie, the world. I'm a little tired. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't blame you. I don't blame you. Uh, like I'm Marines. a little tired. What's that, Chris? She's like the Marines, right? They can do more by six a.m. I know most people do all day, <laughs> all day long. Fire up Zoom. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and we've got the two other colleagues, uh, Steve, Steve Cochran. Good to see you, Steve. Hey, Mark. Good to see you, Steve. I, I, I'm. I'm embarrassed to say, but I think this might be your first time on. No, it, it is the first time. Yes. Oh my gosh! Which is yeah. a shocker to me, because uh, you, you know, Steve and I go back how long? Thirty years. Thirty years. Yeah, thirty years. And you're running our operations in Asia, APAC. Right. You've been doing that for how long now? I've been here five years now, almost. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, you're in Singapore. I'm in Singapore. Great so, place to be. I love it. Love it here. So this is truly a global podcast because we got Marissa sitting out in California, six thirty in the morning, and you're sitting in Singapore. It's nine p.m. Eastern time. That's that's right. Yeah. Or, or nine p. I, what am I saying? Nine Singapore. p.m. It's nine Singapore nine, time. Nine, it, it's yeah. ninety p.m. Right. That's nine correct. a.m. Uh, Eastern time. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Well, good to have you, uh, Steve. Because we are, are going to be talking a lot about, well, exclusively about what's going on in APAC China and. In Taiwan, and uh, also we've got Tim Tim Wei. Tim, good to have you. Good to be here, Mark. Thank and you. And you've been on before chips, I believe. I have, yeah, yeah. So called both the shortage and the turnaround. So if you go back to the first time I appeared on the podcast, wow. um, uh, you asked like when it was going to turn around, and I called it the exact right quarter that it did uh, a <laughs> year well, later. So yeah, so I guess I, I have that going for me. The chip industry. So when you say it turned around. What turned around? The oh, the, uh, that's essentially when the lead time started to drop. Oh, the lead that's, time. That's the key indicator for, for chips, right? Um, yeah. And that had been increasing all throughout the shortage. Um, and so the question was, when is the inflection point? Um, yeah. And I guess, right? I, I guess I, 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 given the demand from all this AI craze, is our lead times now starting to extend out again? Uh, they're still relatively stable. Um, it has to be said that there's a lot of, um, you know, inventory that was built up, um, especially over 2022, um, because a lot of companies were double ordering even as early as the like 2021 due to the pandemic, the chip shortage then. So, um, I think it's going to take a little bit of time to work through all that excess inventory. Um, and also I think a bit of time for, for AI to really kind of, you know, take hold. Right. Got it. Got it. I think uh, last time I think last time you were on, Tim, you mentioned though that not all chips are created equal. There's a lot of heterogeneity, right? So oh, absolutely. it could be that the AI, the high-end chips, start to see some pressure, but the lower oh, end absolutely. auto chips are are fine. Is that accurate? Uh, it's uh I think your point on the chips not being equal is absolutely right. Um and so certainly if you look at lead times, I have I have this report that I I look at every quarter um, and it's very, very heterogeneous. You have some lead times in excess of 52 weeks. You have some lead times well below 20 at this point. Um, it really depends on the application, right? Um, and even between advanced chips and um, 
kind of these what's called older nodes, right? So advanced versus older nodes, older nodes being the ones that are used for cars, right? There's still tensions because a lot of the technology that's being developed, a lot of the fabs that are being built are really for these newer chips, right? So you're right in that it's true that AI is obviously driving a lot of the demand for the newer chips, but, but there's also more supply for the newer chips versus for the older chips. It's true that maybe demand is not really going up, but the supply is also really constrained because the margins aren't quite there. And so I think the shortage there, um, and there was certainly a significant shortage, um, particularly during the pandemic, that hasn't completely gone away. Um, it's slowly getting resolved, right? Um, but but yeah, I think it's still very much, a, I, I would say you would really have to look at each individual application. Right? Is this like a logic chip? Is this a memory chip? What is this being used for, right? In what end product is it going into um, to really determine kind of what the what the accurate lead time would be? Well, judging by NVIDIA stock, uh, investors are expecting a lot of chip sales here pretty soon. So I think it's coming. But but this is uh, a tangential to the conversation at hand. The listeners thinking, well, why this motley crew of uh, Moody's analytics economists? What are we doing here? You know, obviously the relationship uh, between the United States, China, and of course Taiwan has gone. I don't know off the rails is the right way to describe it. But it's certainly not going in the right direction here. And uh, we've been getting a lot of questions from uh, listeners and and clients about uh, you know what might happen here uh, with regard to Taiwan. Taiwan feels like the kind of the uh, the flashpoint that uh, could create the most difficulty for the global economy. And to that end, we have run a couple of different scenarios to try to understand the impact. Uh, that uh, different types of uh, interventions between U.S., China, and Taiwan might have on on the on the global economy. We're here to talk about that. But before we dive into those scenarios uh, and talk about that a, a bit, maybe Steve, I can turn to you and you can provide a little context here. How did we how did we get here? It feels like you know not too long ago, at least. I'm getting older and not long ago, maybe very long for some people, but not long ago, going back to the Obama administration, it didn't, it felt like the China US relationship was going okay, you know, moving in the right direction generally, uh, but it's all gone off the rails. What happened and, and why are we here? It has gone off the rails. And, um, it, it, in, in a sense, it's a shame because for many, many years, decades, you know, the relationship has been quite good, in fact, kind of symbiotic, right? If you go back, I don't know, you probably don't want to go all the way back to the day of uh, Henry Kissinger and, and President Nixon, but certainly back to, say, uh, 2001, when China entered the WTO and, and became a sort of a working partner in the manufacturing economy around the world. Uh, China and the U.S. had a very symbiotic relationship as uh, U.S. manufacturers were looking for a low-cost place of doing business, uh, places where they could uh, offshore certain components of manufacturing and then bring it back to uh, uh, the U.S. for you know, final final assembly. And it worked very well for many many years. Uh, you know, we you know our imports grew from China. It kept costs low. It kept inflation low. Uh, it was uh, a very good relationship. Um, I, th I think it, when China then essentially at one point started be, to be considered more of a, a competitor uh, than a partner and uh, an unfair competitor, if you will, uh, and, and this was, uh, I think, highlighted 
during the Trump administration, administration when the allegations of uh, uh, lack of protection of intellectual property, uh, government subsidies, uh, illegal government subsidies, uh, giving Chinese industries a, a leg up over other countries. Uh, this, these were some of the reasons why uh, Trump then jumped in and started the trade war and slapped on 25% uh, uh, duties, tariffs on uh, uh, so many, so many goods. And then, uh, you know, that might not have been so bad, but then the rhetoric kept building up more and more and more again, particularly during the the, the, the Trump administration. Uh, that just made, I think, conditions even uh, worse than they had to have been. Uh, and the dialogue then no longer became uh, constructive, if you will. And so uh, get, moving into the uh, Biden administration, uh, the feeling that there was this unfair trade that had to be managed uh, uh, with China uh, uh, continued. The rhetoric slowed down a little bit. Uh, but there was there hasn't really been any um, improvement in terms of building up communication between China and the U.S. So there are many many avenues in which there are possibilities for misunderstanding simply because the U.S. and China don't seem to be speaking uh, you know directly to uh, one another. Or they do at one point, and two weeks later something happens and it all falls apart. Then we begin to get a little better, and then something happens and the communication falls back uh, uh, again. And then this, of course, goes beyond pure trade issues, but then moves into areas of national security, uh, both uh, from the, the side of China and the side of the U.S. China, of course, trying to maintain its own security buffer around uh, uh, its uh, uh, its its uh, country, uh, and, and the U.S. doing the same, and then Taiwan uh, kind of stuck in the middle uh, and. The uh, desire, of course, of China ultimately wanting to uh, reabsorb Taiwan back into the uh, the People's Republic of China, and the U.S. stating fairly directly that uh, they would protect Taiwan as an independent country. So we have these uh, intertwined economic and geopolitical issues that are complicating things and making things even worse uh, today than they were uh, in in the past. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it seems to me, even under the Obama administration, there was growing uh, concern about the relationship with China and what it, uh, it meant for the U.S. economy. And Obama's strategy was uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the free trade deal with the Pacific Rim nations, which excluded China. And China could not enter into the free trade deal, TPP, until they played fair, uh, whatever that whatever that meant. So using kind of a carrot to get them to be behave uh, more like a a, a a a responsible trading partner and and partner in the global economy. Uh, President Trump blew that apart. Pretty, I don't know if it was his first executive order, but it was in the top five. <laughs> it was the day of his inauguration, right? I was believe. I okay, remember, right? I don't, was yeah. when he said, "We're exiting the TPP," right? That in the Paris Accord, you know, the Climate Paris Accord, right? You know, the, the, right. He said, "No, we're not doing that." And then, not too there long after, he engaged in the trade wars. And then, since then, it's been kind of downhill, at, you know, on, on all kinds of levels. I mean, I was just reading this morning. Uh, here we are in June, uh, in June, and uh, a, a Chinese uh, a air fighter came within 400 feet of an American jet fighter, uh, military jet fighter, intentionally, obviously. I mean, yeah. that's 
that's not good. Uh, so that, that gives you a sense of, of, you know, where we are. Um, so we've uh, decided given these, you know, the direct direction things are headed and given such how important this, this relationship is uh, and all the questions we're getting about uh, particularly now Taiwan, because that does again, feel like if there's going to be a flat, a, a a flashpoint here, at least militarily, it's going to be around Taiwan and Taiwan independence. We've run a couple of different scenarios uh, trying to understand, you know, what that might lo- look like, feel like, and what it might mean for the global economy. Before we dive into those specific scenarios, though, again, Steve, I'm going to turn back to you. In our baseline kind of view of the world, the kind of you know our forecast, uh, the kind of the the most likely scenario. You know, how are we thinking about how this is all going to play out between China, U.S., and Taiwan? So, Mark, in the in the baseline scenario, we we do assume that there will always be uh, 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 some uh, uh, potential uh, uh, conflict around China, Taiwan, and the U.S., but that any of the any potential conflict will be resolved in some amicable way. That there will be negotiations, there will be discussion, and that there would not actually be a, a conflict, and that in the end. Uh, China, Taiwan, U.S. all continue their what really are rather rich trading relationships between all all three uh, to the to the benefit of all three, and uh, those will, uh, will will continue. We do assume that uh, the economies will c- continue to grow. Uh, right now, uh, Taiwan is in a recession largely because we're at the bottom of this uh, chip cycle and. Uh, uh, we do expect that uh, China, uh, Taiwan will, uh, the economy will be rather slow, kind of hindered over the next six nine months, but ultimately comes back next year as the as the semiconductor cycle turns around. Uh, we assume that uh, China, which is struggling uh, to recover from its uh, um, a zero COVID policy, will at least slowly, perhaps haltingly, as we can see, we actually we got a number today. Uh, from the uh, the official manufacturing purchasing managers index, which was very weak, forty eight point eight. You know, anything below fifty represents a contraction in the manufacturing uh, side of the economy. This is the second month in a, in a row where it's contracted, and the weakest number in four or five months. So, China is is clearly struggling to get its economy back on its feet uh, uh, post COVID. From a uh, and we could spend a whole another podcast talking about this but uh, 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 getting getting all the important components of the economy going but we our, our assumption is that it will uh, and then of course the US economy is going uh, uh, to uh, hopefully avoid recession this year and and uh, begin working uh, towards faster growth next year and beyond as well uh, and uh, so that's the the baseline forecast is a a uh, fairly benign forecast, no conflict. Uh, any issues between China, Taiwan, and the U.S. are are managed amicably, and we work through those issues and and allow the economies to continue on their way. First, do you buy that uh, baseline assumption? Does that make sense to you? I think as a baseline, that's reasonable. You don't want to go out too far on a limb here, but um, yeah, certainly the risks are weighted to the downside. Okay. Uh, okay. Well, I guess the risks, uh, you don't say it with a lot of conviction. So I, I guess it does make sense to consider other scenarios. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. Let's consider them. Uh, and we ran two alternative scenarios. 
I'm going to say before we dive into the meat of the matter, when we say we run a scenario, what what are we doing? What is what what exactly does that mean? Because you know we know this, we do this every single day. But the folks out there that are listening to this, they have no they have no concept of what we're doing. You know exactly how does that work? Do you see what I'm saying, Marissa? You want me to answer that? Yeah, because yeah. you run you you run the train you ship here. You know uh, you you run these scenarios uh, you know on a daily basis. So maybe give give us a sense of you know what that means. Right. So I, I guess the best way to put it is that it's an alternative forecast around our baseline. Some of those scenarios that we run, we actually attach a, a probability to them. Other scenario, but that's not really what we're talking about here. We're talking about a narrative scenario. So it's an alternative story around our baseline. So as Steve and Tim have just laid out with the baseline cases for the China-Taiwan relationship vis-a-vis the rest of the world and the U.S., we can come up with more optimistic or more pessimistic other stories in, in addition to that baseline, right? And so in terms of how we actually do it, we always start with our baseline and then we build in alternative assumptions that we overlay on the model, right? So we're, we're being more heavy-handed in the forecast. We're saying, okay, we're going to make an assumption about, um, you know, a trade or military blockade, or we're going to make an assumption about um, a political regime and, and the fallout that might have on the economy or whatever the scenario is, right? Interest rates or uh, a, a war. So we are doing basically an overlay on top of the baseline to come up with an alternative story. Does that... Yeah, that helps. Yeah, but you said model, and of course we know what the model is because it's it's our it's our lifeblood, our baby, our we're working with it every day. (laughs) But the folks out there, you know, what what are you talking about? Model? Uh, What what is that? Yeah. Yeah. So we have a uh, an interlinked economic macro model that has. 73 countries in it, including the US, China, and Taiwan. And we run this every single month. We forecast, uh, baseline forecast out. Um, now we're going out, what, 80 years, I guess, right. um, every single month. It has tens of thousands of macroeconomic variables in it that include economic variables, demographic variables, financial variables. Um, and so it is a basically a, a stylized view of the world economy, right? And all of these countries are linked together in, in this model through historical relationships of financial markets, economic relationships, migration patterns. Um, And so we're using this global model to run our baseline forecast every month, plus all of these alternative scenarios that we do. Um, The U.S. kind of sits atop the food chain in terms of this model. So Dr. Mark Sandy is the one whose <laughs> point is sort of, you know, dominant in terms of the whole global outlook, right? Mark, you go first and you set the assumptions for the U.S. economy and some broad global assumptions around financial markets and such. And then we have an economist that covers every single one of these countries. I should mention we do more than 73. I think we're up to like 
I don't know what the count is, 120 or so. There's some countries that we do every quarter. Um, and so there's an expert on all of these economies. And Tim is our expert on Taiwan, for example. And then every month, everybody goes in and, you know, checks their forecast and overlays any assumptions they have about their particular country. Perfect. Okay. That's a great description. And because I just think people can't, I get that question yeah. all the time. Like, you know, like in the context of the debt limit debate, I, we were coming up with these estimates of what's going to cost X million dollars, X million jobs if, if we'd breach the debt limit. How do you guys do that? How do you point? actually do yeah, that? How do you think about that? What I can't even yeah. get my I can't even wrap my mind around what what that you know how do you go go about doing that? It is quite com- complex. Steve, anything you wanted? To, any other color there? You don't need to add any color. Just anything we missed. Well, actually, what I wanted to point out is that a couple a couple of features of the model make this pretty uniquely suitable. And, for and the I don't want to turn this into an advertisement. So no advertisement. <laughs> okay. Almost on but, the verge of an advertisement. I don't want that, but yeah. I just want people to understand what we're doing. But go ahead. Well, our model is quite suited to doing this kind of a scenario because it handles prices very well and it handles trade very well. And these, of course, are two um, factors in the economy that would be hit very hard by some kind of a conflict. Prices because of disruptions in supply chains uh, uh, and, and such. And then trade patterns themselves, because we know very clearly which countries are quite open to trade, which are closed to trade, uh, which trade heavily with China, Taiwan, the U.S. You know, we we uh, specifically uh, model relationships, so trade relationships uh, for every country and its largest uh, trading partners. So when we make assumptions about either the kinds of manufacturing and trade disruptions or maybe even more importantly, the kinds of sanctions that might be placed on companies or uh, entities, um, we can uh, quantify those assumptions and fit them into the model quite well because of the way that the model's uh, structured. Great, <clears throat> got it. Okay, so let's come back, Tim, to the scenarios around Taiwan. Tim, can you just describe you know, the, the process? What, what, are, what are we doing here exactly? Yeah, so thanks, Mark. Yeah, so what we did was we really tried to see kind of how these existing tensions, right, um, which have been pretty elevated, um, how they um, escalate into conflict, right? Um, and then we we sort of constructed these scenarios um, in order to show two essentially um, somewhat different views of the world, right? Um, a view of the world wherein the conflict is uh, pretty severe, but short in duration. Um, and then a view of the world wherein there's a lot of uncertainty over how the conflict is resolved, um, but that that conflict um, does not cause as sharp of a recession. Um, and the way that we've uh, envisioned these scenarios, that uh, sort of shorter, sharper um, uh, conflict is what we call a military intervention scenario. We we spoke with a lot of different people. Um, we read a lot of reports um, in terms of trying to get data around um, how could this um, uh, how could this unfold, right? Would, if there would be a military conflict, um, what would be the length of the duration? Um, you know, who are some of the key players, right? Um, how would they react, right? Um, and really, how how could the tensions escalate, right? We know that China right now, right, is doing a lot of um, 
uh, a lot of uh, sort of gray zone warfare tactics, right? Um, certainly unprecedented, nothing that has ever been seen before. What did you say? Gray zone war? Gray zone. Gray zone. Oh, gray zone. Gray zone. Gray zone. Yeah, sorry. Okay. I don't know yeah. if my voice is muffled. No, no, no. I just, that's just me. I had, and, and, and gray zone, you got to explain that too. But that, that, right, right, right. So I think th that's really how, that's kind of the, the motivation behind the scenarios, right? Is that, we see that increasingly after, you know, the former Speaker Pelosi's visit and then subsequently uh, Tsai Ing-wen's visit to the U.S., um, China's really accelerated, um, you know, what, what's called gray zone warfare, meaning that it's not really direct military um, warfare, right? So, so you know, under um, international law, there's no grounds on which this could be punished, right? Um, what it does is it just basically sends a lot of sand dredgers, it sends a lot of these sand transporting boats, um, across the strait, right? To essentially in an effort to overwhelm the Taiwanese Coast Guard. Um, it's also sent a lot of military planes um, across the median line. Again, far more than um, what we've seen um, in previous Taiwan Strait crises. There have been three. Um, and then if you consider what happened shortly after Speaker Pelosi's visit, the fourth one, um, really the activity that we've seen, um, you know, uh, along the Taiwan Strait was really unprecedented. Um, and 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 is really pushing the boundaries of you know Taiwan's defensive capabilities. Um, and in addition to that, you know China is also engaged in a lot of you know cyber warfare. Um, certainly, there have been reports that uh, there has been disruption to network and communication lines in Taiwan. Um, and all of this really leading up to um, the potential uh, for a screen to be created around Taiwan, right? Um, and that's really kind of the the genesis of these scenarios, right? Is that if that occurs, right, and it does seem like there is the possibility that that could occur, right, based on what we've seen, right, um, once again, I should reiterate what Steve said, our baseline assumes that military conflict does not happen, right, and there's also a good reason why we assume that in the baseline, reason being that even China's own Xi Jinping has mentioned in the most recent party congress that, you know, in his words, we will continue to strive for peaceful reunification um, with the greatest sincerity and utmost effort. Um, but also, we will never promise to renounce the use of force. Um, and so if you consider kind of how um, this screen would be created, right, the natural sort of extension to that is what happens should that screen be created around Taiwan? Great. <clears throat> Got it. Okay, so let's come back, Tim, to the scenarios around Taiwan. And you laid out a nice kind of uh, co nice context, uh, the China does feel like it's tightening the noose around maybe that's too strong a word but you use the word screen i i use the word noose you know around taiwan not quite there yet i mean obviously but you're you ended by saying they could if they wanted to you know put that noose around uh taiwan and 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 really make life very difficult and cut off taiwan uh and that now leads to to the scenarios what uh, uh, one other question before we get there though what do the Taiwanese people think uh, about all this? I mean, uh, do they want independence from China generally? I mean, I, obviously, I'm sure there's a lot of diversity of opinion there, but you know, how how are how are they viewing this relationship with China, and how has that changed over time, and where does it where is it right now? So it's evolved a lot over time. I think as you as you kind of um, anticipated, Mark. Um, I think the Taiwanese people by and large are used to this at this point, right? Um, I, I mentioned three previous Taiwan Strait crises that have already occurred. 
for if you include what happened after Speaker Pelosi's visit. So this is not something new, right? Um, they're used to kind of uh, China essentially saying that, you know, Taiwan is a part of China. Um, and and certainly there are, you know, um, segments of the population um, and even a, a political party within Taiwan that has, you know, pretty, um, I would say, friendly relations with, with the Chinese Communist Party. That being said, if you look at um, the most recent elections, if you look at um, a lot of the most recent surveys, um, the Taiwanese do believe that, um, uh, or they would prefer um, to still be, they identify as being Taiwanese and they would prefer to still be um, their own uh, sort of uh, independent state, if you will, um, uh, be a part of that. And so I think the, the identity has has really coalesced around kind of um, uh, the 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 island um, as opposed to maybe in years past where um, there was more of a kinship um, uh, due to the similarity in uh, ethnicities. Okay. Okay. Very good. Okay. So let's turn to the scenarios, the alternative scenarios to the baseline, and let's begin with the no military. What we're calling the no military intervention scenario in. In my mind, that scenario feels, tastes kind of sort of like the Russian war in Ukraine, right? It's this kind of ongoing uh, conflict that doesn't feel like it's ever going to have an ending to it. Uh, I don't know in our scenario whether we have an outright invasion of, of Taiwan. I don't think we do, but uh, but the but it feels like this conflict is uh, just ongoing. Is that a fair characterization? Yes, I think so, Mark. Yeah. So okay. I think this this scenario is really supposed to kind of, um, in some sense, uh, mirror the the Russian invasion of Ukraine, as you said, in the in the in the sense that um, uh, it, there's a lot of uncertainty around how it's going to be resolved. Uh, it lasts several years, um, and there isn't really a, sh a a strong, sharp recession, right? Precisely because, as you said, the U.S. and um, its partners do not really get directly involved militarily, right? That being said, they do impose sanctions, right? Sanctions are imposed on both sides. Um, the U.S. does support Taiwan um, by providing, you know, defense intelligence. Um, it also um, ensures that there is a corridor that's created um, in order to allow uh, key goods like semiconductor chips safe passage, right? Um, so there isn't a complete halt, Um in uh, supply chains that rely on um, key Taiwanese exports, um, like electronic equipment, metals and machinery, semiconductor chips, things along those lines. Um, Why would China allow that? Is it because they just don't want a military intervention? They know that if they actually cut off the chip supply from Taiwan, the U.S. would be in a pretty tough spot. So the entire global economy would be in a pretty tough spot, and that would more than likely create a military conflict. Is that the logic? Yes. So it works both ways, right? China's also heavily reliant on Taiwan. Um, and so both China and the U.S. are, in fact, two of the largest consumers of uh, semiconductor chips. Um, but presumably so the Chinese could get the chips from, from Taiwan, right? They could create this screen around Taiwan, cut off all access to Taiwan, except for China Chinese companies, no? Right. But the U.S., obviously, as you said, would react very strongly. Okay. Against, all right. Yeah. Um, and and right. And... We've spoken with with certain people who I won't name um, who have full confidence that they would be able to break any screen that would be created around Taiwan. Um, and so I think that gives us some measure of confidence that even if there is an attempt to create a screen, 
um, that there would still be a corridor that's created um, in both scenarios um, that would allow, um, again, key goods, right? We're not saying that there's no supply chain disruption. We're just saying that any supply chain disruptions will be mitigated by this corridor that's created um, around Taiwan. Okay. Okay. Very good. And in uh, how long, do, how does this ultimately resolved? How do we make an assumption about that as well? I mean, is it ever resolved? Uh, it's gradual, right? So, um, so basically, after the the brunt of the recession happens within the first two years, um, but then there's gradually, basically, um, uh, sort of this uh, recovery, and and it kind of fades into the rearview mirror, right? Much like I think you know Russia Ukraine when it first started, it was such a big deal. It had such a huge impact, you know, particularly in commodity prices, right? Um, in this case, it has very much the same flavor, right? Where I think a lot of the 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 shock to the global financial system the global economy is in those first two years right but there are still lingering effects right and so here maybe i'll talk about some of the model mechanisms right um i think steve mentioned trade trade is obviously one of the biggest um in kind of mechanisms through which um, the shocks are transmitted in particular trade in and out of greater china really um grinds to a halt declines very sharply as does investment um, into the region. Obviously, the currencies fall um, significantly. Um, and furthermore, um, here is where I'll contrast it with Russia-Ukraine, right? So in contrast to Russia-Ukraine, where you have huge kind of uh, shock to supply, right? In this case, you have a huge shock to demand, uh, particularly for oil and other commodities, because China is the world's largest importer um, of these key commodities. And so as a result of that, in contrast to Russia, okay, here you actually have prices falling pretty significantly. Um, price for, for Brent basically drops um, uh, below, you know, $50 a barrel um, in this particular, like no intervention, no military intervention scenario. Um, and that- I thought you said the price, price of price of bread. Did he say the price of bread? I thought he said the price, price of Brent. bread. Brent. Oh, Brent. It's okay. Brent, Brent crude. Brent crude. <laughs> Brent, Sorry, Brent, I'm having a hard time. Okay. Yeah, I was I going, I price of bread. How I don't does know, he whether, know that. Yeah. I don't know whether it's the sound or just my. <laughs> okay. I think Mark that's, is hungry. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. That famous oil. Taiwanese okay. bread. Okay. 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 Fair enough. Okay. I'm going, boy, I go, that is, that is very detailed. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, go ahead. Sorry, I stopped you. No worries, no worries. Um, yeah, so I was just saying, I think in contrast to Russia, Ukraine, right, you have um, these oil and commodity prices falling through the roof. And so then you have um, inflation actually coming down instead of, you know, what you would expect, perhaps with, with some of the supply chain disruptions. So coming down in the short run, but then eventually, the supply chain disruptions, and more importantly, the, the decoupling and the deglobalization that happens as a result of all this uncertainty around um, greater China um, basically leads to inflation going above baseline in the medium term before reverting back to baseline. Um, so it creates a lot of these really interesting dynamics that again are, are very different from Russia, Ukraine, just because of the nature of uh, the conflict here. So where- what you're saying, one of the uh, perhaps surprising or uh, feels like a surprising result is the shock initially is disinflationary, deflationary, because it's a, such a hit to global demand, particularly for commodities, because China is a huge consumer of global commodities. So oil prices go down, metals prices go down, uh, commodities more generally, and that uh, overwhelms the inflationary impacts of any supply chain disruptions. But ultimately, you know, eventually, uh, further down the road, 
the commodity price effects fade, and then you're left with the disrupted supply chains, uh, just kind of a, a scrambled mess. And that ultimately results in shortages and, and higher prices and inf inflationary pressures. And also you pointed out longer run, the, the inflationary impact of, of deglobalization. I mean, we globalization lowered prices pretty consistently, you know, back uh, after China entered into the WTO. But in this case, deglobalization results in higher inflation. That that's kind of the dynamic you're describing here that comes out in this scenario. That's absolutely right, Mark. And yeah. I think that reorganization of supply chains, this deglobalization, really is the the strongest kind of lasting impact. Um, in both um, scenarios. Um, I think it, Tim is speaking Canadian. I think that's the problem. Do you, have you noticed? <laughs> could be Canadian. Mark. How do you say reorganization? How do you say that again? A reorganization. I mean, at least I, I didn't finance. <laughs> what if, if I said finance, that would Is be that actually Canadian? Way. That feels... I, I can tell you that finance versus finance. That I think a lot okay. of my American friends yeah, always okay. used to like, <laughs> me. You know, I'm, I'm a CFA, right? So all of my CFA friends always said, you're you're saying it wrong, man. Like, you shouldn't be allowed. Like, you shouldn't right. even be given the sort of, like, <laughs> qualification. You can't be in the club, man. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. So in a no military intervention scenario, it's a kind of a... Uh, a, a dark scenario that plays out over a long period of time, and it's it's darker than Russia Ukraine, be, just simply because, or in part because China is a big economy with lots of links with the rest of the world. Russia is a small economy with very few links to the rest of the world. Is that kind of sort of right? That's right. That's right, Mark. And I think yeah. just to kind of um, uh, you've hit the nail the nail on the head, right? Um, China is just too big, right, for the world to to decouple from completely. And so I just want to emphasize that in these scenarios, we do not assume that, that China is just completely isolated, right? Um, uh, on the contrary, what we actually do is we have very specific assumptions around sanctions. So sanctions only being applied to sectors that are critical to national security in this no military intervention scenario. So that those would be defense, you know, um, advanced manufacturing, you know, AI, um, you know, uh, chips to a certain degree, right, electronics, um, but they are not, um, you know, comprehensive and do not include other sectors um, because, yeah, as you said, Chinese demand is too important. Okay, got it. Then, could, just, oh, sorry, ask a question. Uh, yeah, could you speak to the timing of the scenario? I think it, yeah, definitely matters, right? If this is pushed out into the future, there's enough time for those supply chains to be moved around. There's already activity around that. Uh, but if, of course, if it if it happens immediately, the effects would be greater. So, what is the uh, what does the scenario assume? Yeah, that's a great question, Chris. And so we had a lot of discussion around this. So let me preface by saying that, um, and here actually, this, this will go back to Mark and Marissa's point about scenario construction, right? We assume that the conflict starts the end of this year. This does not mean that we think any military conflict is going to happen this year, right? On the contrary, we believe that, first of all, the probability of military conflict is very low. And even if it does happen, the earliest possible date would be 2027. There's a couple of reasons why we assume we made this assumption that um, the scenario of shock starts end of this year. One is that we want it to be far enough out in the future so that, you know, by the time the scenarios come out, the forecasts come out, um, this would not be history, right? Which does happen sometimes with some of the, the sort of uh, standard scenarios that we produce. But the other thing also is that we want this to have an important um kind of uh, impact in terms of measuring risks, right? As you mentioned, Chris, um, if this was too far out, if we started this out in 2027, right, then necessarily the impacts would be far more diminished, right, than starting it out 
um, end of this year, right? Um, and that's really for the benefit of our clients, right? Because we do have clients that are interested in sort of seeing and quantifying just how big of a shock this would be, right? Um, to the countries wherein they have significant exposure. We started at end of this year. But Tim, to, to Chris's question, the, the no military scenario is about a two to three year uh, length, right? That's right. That's right. So it starts, yeah. um, the conflict starts end of this year. It, the the sort of conflict proper is for two years, right? And then there's mm -hmm. a recovery, um, slow recovery, right? Um, that lasts um, about five years in total. And then all of those, we mentioned the, the reorganization of supply chains, that in total is about 10 years. So the reversion to baseline doesn't happen until about 2030 or so. So, so very quickly, uh, Tim, because I want to move on to the next scenario. Uh, what is the peak to trough decline in global GDP in this no military intervention scenario? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so in this scenario, um, we have uh, um, 8% uh, at the trough, right, relative to baseline. Um, and then long run is uh, 6% below base. And this is for the U.S.? This is for the globe. This is the, for the uh, global GDP. Okay. This is global GDP. Okay. That's a lot. It's uh, a lot. Yeah. 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 How much did it decline in the uh, financial crisis? Do you know? Probably like 5%-ish. Yeah. I don't have off the top of my head, but I believe that's right. Yeah. Because we, yeah. we calibrated this basically to be worse than um, anything that we'd seen before. So. Okay. Okay. All right. The second alternative scenario is, okay, there's military intervention. So describe kind of the mechanics, you know, what happened there in that, what happens there in that scenario. And, um, absolutely. And, uh, so, okay. So this scenario really, I think, um, and then you played a big part of this mark. Um, and I did scenario, at least to, <laughs> it, that's how it felt. Cause we, okay, we very good. You're at the various iterations. Then it must be good. Okay. Far away. Yeah, so it must be good. Right. Um, <laughs> and I remember when we were discussing this, um, you specifically said you wanted a sharper, sharper oh, yeah. um, right. scenario, as opposed to in the past, we used to have like these prolonged conflicts. And there's good reason for that, right? Um, uh, you know, I think the scenario ass assumes that there's an immediate counteroffensive by the US and its allies, and this catches China off guard. This is pretty important, right? Um, the counteroffensive leads to um, direct conflict, right? And this direct conflict is certainly a lot more severe than the no military intervention scenario. Um, given that it now involves the entire world, right? This is no longer just China, Taiwan. This now involves the US, you know, um, Australia, the UK, you know, Japan, Canada, what have you. Um, so it only lasts a couple of quarters. Um, and there's also much heavier sanctions, right? It's going to be sanctions on both uh, sectors that are important for economic security, but also national security, right? So on top of your defense, um, your AI, your advanced manufacturing. Now we're talking about banks. We're talking about professional services. We're talking about key sens sensitive sectors, you know, or even products, right? That are that are very critical for for the trading relationship. You know, things like soybeans. You know, things like rare earths. Um, those would be covered, right, under this scenario, um, because you know there's going to be sanctions on both sides and, and pretty intense fighting uh, for a short period of time. Um, and, and certainly there's going to be more firms, especially Western firms that move away from China, as China is also barred from SWIFT. Um, so this is really the scenario wherein you see kind of- SWIFT, you got to explain that, SWIFT. Oh yeah, SWIFT is a payment system that's mm -hmm. used all around the world um, to facilitate all kinds of um, international transfers. 
Um, and so that's really something that um, you can't trade without Swift. You need Swift right. to help. To that's right. You know, it's not uh, exclusively the case, but still, it's pretty much the case. The Swift system, which is controlled, I think, by the U.S. Right? Effectively, uh, okay. I believe so. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So. Um, and so I think this is really the the darker scenario, if you will, from a short run perspective, right? Um, where we wanted to see just how bad could things get. Um, that being said, because this scenario resolves relatively quickly, the recovery is far stronger as well. Um, because there is just less uncertainty, right? Like, you know, that when the conflict ends, it ends, um, and we're in the clear, right? Because of that, you see that um, while the initial drop is uh, more severe, so 10% below baseline at the trough for global GDP, um, the faster recovery leads to long-term GDP impacts that's um, closer to 4% below baseline, as opposed to 6% in the no military intervention scenario. So I think that presents this very nice kind of contrast, right, between short-term impacts and long-term impacts. Um, but I'm, I must say, though, that in the end, the one kind of overarching kind of sort of conclusion really is that nobody wins in either of these scenarios, not a single country benefits um, on net, right? Certainly there are, you know, um, countervailing forces, right? Certainly during this reorganization of supply chains, you see um, a bunch of, you know, countries, especially in, in APAC, you know, sort of um, having, you know, uh, more Western firms um, build factories and plants um, in those countries to replace um, what would otherwise be built in China. Um, the negative effects from just, you know, negative sentiment, the productive capacity that's destroyed as a result of the conflict um, far outweigh any uh, of these sort of uh, positive uh, uh, countervailing forces. Great. Good. Could one, I'm just trying to think of what's the most realistic scenario. I mean, we have our baseline, but, you know, could it be the case that the way this plays out is uh, the U.S. becomes much less dependent on Taiwan? I mean, we're very dependent on Taiwan because of the chips. And that's one reason, key reason why the administration, Biden administration, uh passed the CHIPS Act, the the, uh, the piece of legislation tried to incent uh, more production here of chips in the United States. That's going to take time, obviously. Building a chip plant is a pretty difficult endeavor. It takes years to do. But if you look out five, 10 years from now, presumably the U.S. is much less dependent on Taiwan and other U.S. companies much less dependent on China because, you know, as Chris pointed out, U U.S. companies are moving operations here pretty quickly. Uh, they're, they're they're reshoring, they're pushing uh, production into Southeast Asia. You know, Vietnam is the poster child for that. Mexico, uh, and the, we are decoupling. We're just quickly decoupling, uh, and uh, this doesn't feel like that's going to change anytime soon. Um, and so you look out five, ten years from now, the two economies, two countries are just much more disengaged. And in that point, we just kind of, the conflict fades away. I mean, I don't know what happens. It feels like Taiwan is in a very tricky spot at that point, but it just feels like the U.S. doesn't have the interest that it has now to kind of, you know, protect Taiwan from uh, uh, from China. Does that, does, that, does that sound right to you as a, as a scenario or would you push back on that? 
I would say qualitatively, I share your sentiment, Mark. I think there is certainly a desire to be more diversified. Um, but we were also joking at the top of the call that you wanted statistics, right? And so, and I'm not even going to make you guys guess. I'll just throw them out there. Go ahead. Make us guess. Um, Go ahead. I'll make you guess. Yeah. So I like to see Mar Marissa. Marissa always gets any all these anyway. So go ahead. All right. So what is um, over ninety percent? Something related to Taiwan. In chips. It related to chips, yes, but yeah. what specifically? We get ninety percent of certain DRAMs from Taiwan. Oh wow, that's so specific. No, not really. And actually, <laughs> like, DRAM, I can pretty much tell you that absolutely that 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 very likely is wrong. I'm sorry to tell you that. Part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Korea has end. very strong yeah. DRAM production. What do you say, Marissa? Korea. Oh, oh, I have no idea. No I have no idea. idea. No, okay. I don't All know. Right. Chris? Is it a particular type of chip or application? It is a particular type of chip or a certain oh, size of chip. Uh, oh, so Mark yeah. is on the right I, track. I deserve credit for that. Come on. Oh, but 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 being wildly wrong. But but DRAMs, <laughs> Mark, all of my South Korean friends will write me hate mail. And they're like, you know better than this, right? Like you read all these detailed semiconductor reports. Okay, what is what is it? Go far away. It, oh. Is it AI? It chips related to AI, 90% very close, term. Very TSMC close. produces some, them. some wacko name for a chip that you know <laughs> it's a X350 slash Mark is just rattling off all these random chip types. <laughs> no, that was that has nothing. I to think do with, those were made up numbers and letters strung numbers. together. I'm looking at the serial number for this PC. Is what I'm doing. Yeah, go ahead. So, so Steve was very close. So it's literally chips that are five nanometers um, and smaller, right? So these are the advanced chips, right? Of course. And certainly, of course. AI. <laughs> I, I'm guessing Chris probably would have guessed that uh, since he was, was on he the was tip of his tongue. I didn't want to say because it, it was so obvious, but uh, yeah. Yeah, but that was my easy, easy number, right? Um, here's another number. Yikes. And they're both related to they're both related to Mark's point, right? Um, over 60%. What is that? Just over 60%. Another type of chip that we uh, still chips, but this is actually more general. Okay. All right. We give Go over ahead. five nanometers. <laughs> 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. So it's actually over 60% of the world's semiconductors are produced in total. Okay. Yeah. In, wow. total. in wow. total. That's a lot. Yeah. Right. So I think while I share your sentiment, Mark, um, I think there's a desire to diversify. The reality is given how like just a preponderance of Taiwan. Like oh, you're saying it's, we can't do it. All chips. It's very hard to do. Interesting. Okay. It's very hard to do. Very yeah. good. Uh, okay. I want to end this way, uh, handicapping these things because people are saying, well, okay, uh, well, you know, what's the, how big a deal is this? Uh, so uh, we've got the baseline. The baseline is sanguine, lots of different ways you can get there. Uh, and let's say everything else, all other alternatives that, res that, that involve some form of sanction slash conflict, you know, military or not, what's the, what's the probability of, of that, of that alternative world dark, much darker than the baseline. Steve, what do you think? I, I would say 5%. Oh, geez. I, really? I think it's out there on the tail. Yeah. That's way out on the tail. Okay. Yeah. I, and I think it is because, and we could see with the work we've done, uh, what high economic costs there would be uh, with the kinds of conflict that we've laid out. Uh, so I put, I put it out there. Yeah. So you, you think it's basically an accident, you know, so there's an accident. Well, 
Um, and you talked about two that, airplanes uh, crashed the fighter together. jets. That's yeah. right. Your example of today's fighter jets coming within what 400 feet. You said, yeah, uh, uh, that's that's like so close to an accident, and it only takes one of those to happen. And the lack of communication between China and the U.S. for something like this to blow up. I and mean, look at the brouhaha that occurred when we shot down the uh, the, the balloon over the Atlantic Ocean, uh, and that was pretty benign. So, uh, okay. yeah. Okay, so five percent. That's basically in some kind of uh, accident that uh, results in uh, some uh, more involved conflict. Okay. It, it gets more involved. That's exactly yeah. right. Okay. Before I, I'm going to go to Tim last, but Chris, do you have a view on this? I tend to agree with uh, with Steve. Okay. I think it's fairly low probability, and I think both sides recognize the uh, consequences here. So it would have to be some type of mistake or accident. I think there's certainly the provocations that Tim talked about. I think they continue, but uh, I I don't know. I, at least I right. want to believe we don't cross the line so easily or cavalier. and just to be clear i'm including the no military intervention scenario here too not just the military intervention scenario. something that okay that's that's put it this way something is meaningfully different than the baseline that's on the correct. dark side yeah. okay okay you're saying five percent yeah i think so Ooh. okay marissa do you have a view no i mean i i, I trust steve <laughs> okay <laughs> I defer to the I expert faith. here I have yeah faith. i have faith in steve and faith. tim tim yeah, no, I'm, I'm with Steve. Yeah, I think definitely less than 10%. Yeah, I think um, I quoted um, Xi Jinping earlier, but that is a sentiment that even, you know, goes back to like Deng Xiaoping days. Um, and same thing in terms of if you listen to what's come out of the White House, right? Um, I don't think anyone wants military conflict um, around Taiwan. So so hopefully we can keep our, you know, our jets away from each other, right? Um, and leave peaceably. And I think everyone would would, would love to have that outcome. And that, that, uh, that probability is... Also, including again, just to make sure that I understand, no military intervention, just mm -hmm. you know, strict sanctions, corridor for the chips, that kind of uh, conflict. You would include that in your less than ten percent. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Okay, I think you guys are being too Pollyannish, actually. Okay, what's your percentage, Mark? Twenty-five percent. Wow. Oh okay. yeah. For for the no military conflict. No, or anything for, that's for not the cumulative. Baseline. Anything that's not the okay. baseline, take the distribution, put the baseline in the middle, look to the <clears throat> right-hand side of the distribution. I'd say it's 25%. Something palpably darker is going to happen here than what we think. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, it just doesn't... We're moving apart at lightning speed on every level, economic, political, social. We're disengaging. And I think it's just a lot harder to hit each other over the head when you're disengaged like that. You know, when you're embracing each other, it's hard to pull your hand up and hit the other guy on the head because you've got your hand, arms around them. When you're when you're apart, you can take a swing. Uh, and I think accidents happen, you know? So I, I don't know. I don't I don't have a warm, fuzzy feeling here. And when I say 25%, I don't see, I, I'm, I'm thinking not next, not next month, next year, but over the expanse of this conflict that, you know, could play out over a, d a decade or two. So this is not, this is not something that's going to go away quickly. This is something that's going to play out over a long period of time. But you, you make a point there, Mark, I think that uh, is worth uh, noting is if we're, t if we're looking for that point where an accident might happen, that would generate a conflict. If you've got a 10, 15 year period mm. where one accident could happen, well, that raises the probability just from the, the, uh, the time frame that you're looking at. 
simply cyber, a cyber war. You know, it yeah. feels like, you know, maybe maybe it's not jets fighting each other or ships fighting mm-hmm. each other. It's we're fighting each other on the web. You know, we're shutting down each other's, well, I don't know, making it up, electric grid. But, you know, that you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. But how likely is it that uh, no military conflict scenario? I mean, if we, I think sanctions would be interpreted as an act of war, right? If the U.S. were to unilaterally impose. Well, we're probably some sanctions now, though, aren't we? But we're not. At, I think we're talking a, a different level. Like, okay, okay, for right. Enough. We're putting some uh, tariffs, certainly, but not to the point of cutting off trade as we've done with Russia to a, a very large degree. I think if that step is taken, then the next step towards war become, I mean, the reaction would be quite negative. I would. Well, I would isn't that what I'm saying? I mean, you say 5%, but yeah, but that's why I don't, th- I don't see. So you're saying 25% is anything. I see. You're saying I don't it, see that that no military action scenario actually has. A is, vi- is that viable? Because it's it either jump from this current daytime it. to, to war. I don't see. Hmm. You can ratchet it up, but not cross the line. Right. Right. Maybe. Yeah, just, yeah. I think to Mark's point, I will say that, um, and this is something that um, is is um, really the rationale for that 2027 date that I had said earlier, um, is that that is the date for the next party Congress uh, for the Chinese Communist Party. And certainly um, Xi Jinping has mentioned that he would like to leave a legacy um, and you know, reintegrating Taiwan could potentially be part of that legacy. Um, and so I think your point, Mark, about um, a longer time horizon certainly changes the calculations um, in terms of how likely there is to be, um, you know, a conflict over time. Yeah. Okay. Very good. That was a great discussion. And of course, we're going to be at, I'm sure, back at this in the not too distant future because this is evolving very rapidly. Uh, any last words, guys? Um, I know it was a, a bit of a bear to do this. A lot of conversations with lots of different people in all walks of life and here in Asia and the whole team was involved and a lot going, a lot of moving parts here, but you got to cross the finish line. Congratulations on that. And there is a paper out there, a white paper. So if folks are interested, let us know. We'll get that to you as well. And the the, the scenarios are in the databases for folks to use if you're interested. Uh, any other words of wisdom? Okay. Hearing none. I'm always open for words of wisdom. Okay. Still hear none. Okay. Okay. Going, going, gone. Thank you, dear listener. We'll talk to you next week. 